At last, Libya's government moves in, but how long before it moves out? Which British intelligence agency is chasing jihadist bombers? America beefs up its military presence in Eastern Europe in response to Russian aggression. And continental shelves explained why Argentina reckons it's onto a winner with the Falklands. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. Members of Libya's UN-backed government of national accord have arrived in Tripoli by sea and set up a temporary seat of power at a naval base there. The UN hopes the new administration might stabilise the situation in Libya. It's supposed to replace the two rival administrations, one of which has been based in Tripoli, the other in the eastern city of Tobruk. I'm joined firstly in the studio by our BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and on the line by Libya analyst Jason Pack. Now, Jason, first to you. I understand they were forced to arrive by sea because the rival governments were preventing them from arriving by air. Um, With a start like this, how can the new government be expected to succeed? It can't be. Um, It's only one of three competing political authorities in Libya at the moment, as you've mentioned. However, the key thing is none of those three political authorities actually hold power. It's the militias who have the monopoly of violence and also the local councils who have the loyalty of the people and functional institutions, which hold sway on who does what in Libya. It's a bit like the old uh, Hamid Karzai thing, describing him as the mayor of Kabul, while all the tribal leaders and everyone else ruled the rest of the country. Um, no, but it's not even that, because the, the GNA, or UN-backed unity government, won't even be mayors of Tripoli, or even of their naval base. So they just sat there waiting for something to happen? No. <laughs> they are, they're imposed by Western actors so that they can formally be legitimate on the international stage and hence request Western military support in the fight against ISIS. That's the end game. In other words, no one expects them to govern the country. They expect them to lodge a series of requests um, for training packages against Islamic State in CERT and coastal areas, as well as help um, you know, with uh, migrant smuggling, as well as help getting some of the oil terminals under control. They exist to rubber stamp various international proposals for assistance and intervention, essentially. Yes, we've heard about these thousand troops, potentially, that Britain could send for training missions and so forth, but there's always been the caveat that the two rival administrations would have to form one, agree with each other, then we could go in. This, you're saying, Jason, replaces that need because they can act as a puppet, if you like, to put those measures in place. Yes, or to call for assistance, and then it won't be seen as an intervention. I think what's key and what's misunderstood is... We've been forcing a top-down project, i.e., let's have some political leaders in a room, have them hash out their differences, and sign a piece of paper. That's this top-down and, I believe, flawed model. The bottom-up model is what needs to be adopted. Let's have stakeholders, militia leaders and local council people and tribal leaders. Let's have them build from the ground up in their local communities some kind of modus vivendi or special operations room to fight ISIS. Why That's, haven't they done this so far, though? I think that this has to do with bureaucracy. There is an idea, um, not only in the UK, but also here, that states are sovereign and that people, as soon as they're elected, represent a sovereign state, and he's the minister of such and such. If you want to talk about water rights, you've got to talk to the water minister. So that 
viewpoint has been applied to Libya. Oh, people are sitting in Tobruk and they are the legitimate government mm -hmm. until we have such and such UN process and now we have another legitimate government. That's not the the way that makes any sense. I think that a more longer term kind of British imperial model of the 19th century that would see some of these areas as terra nullius, meaning areas without sovereignty, would then be able to negotiate with layers which are not uh, you know, sovereign states and ministers uh -huh. and cabinets. That's the kind of incorrect way to look at what's going on in Libya. Christopher Lee. We've also got another aspect of this, and that is that the, in the past, in the recent past, it's almost been assumed that the, let's call them the, the great powers, like uh, the United States, France, um, yeah. and uh, United Kingdom, with either imperial past, colonial responsibilities, whatever, but also their position as members of the Security Council they can fix it. They can impose. They can put their own men in. doesn't matter whether it's a, it's a proper way of doing it or not, but they can actually fix a problem. We have seen from the Maghreb round to Syria, let's say, that these great powers can no longer fix it. But if you can imagine a, a, a briefing in Number 10 Downing Street, the morning briefing from the Prime Minister... Uh, up gets the man from the foreign office and he says, uh, well, I have a list here and he goes, Syria, etc. And he gets to Libya and now Libya and the Prime Minister looks and nothing really is said and they can pass on to health service or sport or whatever they like. There is no fixtures that they can be seen to be put in place because there is neither the political will to do so, nor the resources and nor the know-how of what they're expected to do next. Fair analysis, Jason? I think that's essentially right. Um, it's a it's a hot potato in in the U.S. This is because of the Benghazi as a political issue between the Republicans and the Democrats. So Obama backed off from 2012 rather than engaging in the nation building and capacity building assistance that we should have been doing. He didn't want to be seen to keeping Libya as an issue which the Republicans could attack Hillary about. So that's made us take a back seat. Here in the UK, it's slightly different. Cameron sees Libya as a legacy project, and he does want to be involved. And obviously, the British are have special forces on the ground now. They're training some Misratans. They're quite engaged. They have commercial interests. But is there the political will, I mean, at the level of, say, dealing with Ukraine or Syria? No. Libya is seen as a more minor issue. However, people do understand that if we begin to win more in Syria and Iraq against ISIS, the ISIS leadership will simply flee to CERT. And that makes Libya a absolutely top-tier geopolitical and geostrategic issue. So I'd like to think that there are people who grasp that a hard look is going to need to be given at Libya. How can we make tough, to ch tough choices to work with unsavory actors, but unsavory actors who will help us against the Islamic State, rather than just, oh, we lack the political will to do anything? You know, those unsavory actors will only help us, we call it. They'll only help as long as they're getting help, and it's working their way. What we're seeing still is this collection of uh, different types with looking for sort of blood revenge and who will eventually sort of uh, not govern but govern their local patch and that's what we have and you know when you go back to the reason for example that the United Kingdom and France especially got involved in the first place uh, I reckon if you walked the, the panels of Whitehall today you'd find a lot of the old and wise heads would say what a pity we got rid of Gaddafi <laughs> OK, on that note, Christopher, we'll have to leave it. Jason Pagley, founder of LibyaAnalysis.com, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure.
Still to come on the programme, the Falklands. Is it getting scary once again? Now, straight from Dad's army, Downing Street's response to the Brussels bombing was don't panic. What they didn't say was that counter-terrorism set up was double-checking every piece of information appearing on its screens. Christopher Lee, how do intelligence agencies in the UK hunt would-be bombers? Okay. well, the first thing that there are probably at the moment in... Let's take one of the agencies. I mean, the agents we've got, we've got the... uh, We we have the obvious ones of MI6, MI5, uh, GCHQ. Um, We have the Joint Intelligence Organisation, the Joint Intelligence Committee. We have the Cabinet Secretary who's running the uh, the Director General of Intelligence, Security and Resilience. Um, the Foreign Secretary runs the uh, MI6 and the Government Communications Headquarters. Home Secretary runs Security Service and the Defence Secretary runs the Defence Intelligence Staff. They have at the moment, MI5 leading on this, they have 15 operational requirements, 15 of them. Uh, and they are, they, the sort of list they have, they will have ID or aliens, mm-hmm. you know, what do, what do we know about that person? Well, they have biometric details that they have to have. What does he look like? What are his habits? Uh, and they have something else now, which is, um, which I think is developing. They have something called ProInt, and that is protected intelligence. And they have people working on that. Now, protected intelligence would involve, say, you and I. Every time we put a, a, a credit card through, we have an intelligence exhaust, as they call it. Um, and we have started something. We know which direction we're going. We know where we're buying things. Now, you take MI5 having to work on this, and MI5 at the moment has probably got just about 2,500 people, which they would come under those things like ID, aliens, etc., uh, behavioural patterns, deviations of, uh, of normal duties. MI5's got, say, 2,500 people to watch. In MI5, although it's building, uh, 2,200 people. Mm. Out of those operationally working on screens, working on the streets and get gathering information, you've probably only got just over 600. Now, 600 have to have days off. They have to go to you know, school fates. They have to, uh, etc. They have got the most mammoth task, even cooperating with other people. The mammoth task of keeping track of the people that actually start off in that, those 15 operational requirements. A couple of points on that, Christopher. A small number of people... But we, the British intelligence services, appear to be doing a lot better than, say, the Belgians. I mean, from what you said there, it sounds like we have the same layers of bureaucracy as the Belgians have been incredibly criticised for in the intelligence field there. But we obviously share better. But how are we doing so much better than others with those limited resources? Uh, Because we know what we're doing with the organisations that we've got. We've also got certain advantages. We've got, um, hard to believe sometimes, but we've got an immigration check. Looking at the immigration services, there is a connection there. We know how many people are coming in. But the problem is, is the, is the wider diaspora, as it now is. I'll give you one example. Um, the then head of Manning and Buller, the head of MI5, when we had the 2005 bombing in London, she had information book before her which said, we believe, we being the department, MI5, that some 100,000, more than 100,000 of British citizens th- supported the bombing. 
And I guess the difficulty, that's a staggering figure, but the difficulty extrapolating from that is they won't be the obvious people one would imagine would support the bombing, i.e. jihadists. There might be all sorts of other people involved in that who wouldn't normally appear on the radar that could thence go on. That's right. And you've also got another uh, another problem which which nobody had understood, and this is the difficult one, and this is the huge one that involves now IS and, and recruiting, etc. We have in the United Kingdom, uh, let's say, a third generation of immigrant at the moment. You take a young man who has been... A young man, we're talking 18 to 35-year-olds, that's how they're bracketed. And he lives in a, in, a, in a community which is largely Muslim. He has grandparents, grandfather and, and father. And he looks at grandfather and grandfather and he says this, Hey, you are pleased to be here. You are grateful to be here in the United Kingdom because the United Kingdom gave you house room and etc. Now, I have education... I am third-generation English, for example, and yet when I get on the tube, an office worker will look at me and think, is he carrying a waistcoat? I want to get my own identity. I want to say I am not English, even though the family's been here for 70 years. I'm a Q84 or, or whatever I am. And that is one of the biggest intelligence problems that facing certainly MI5 and the, and the uh, Metropolitan Police at the moment. Christopher, thank you for that. Let's move on to our next topic. The United States is to deploy an armoured brigade combat team to Eastern Europe next February in response to what it calls an increasingly aggressive Russia. This will bring the total US Army presence in Europe up to three brigades. Each armoured brigade will bring its own modern equipment. It will be stationed in Eastern Europe for some nine months before being replaced. Meanwhile, the think tank Chatham House has published a new paper on the Russian threat. It says Russia has successfully transformed its military and communication capabilities over the past decade, and got the upper hand over the West in several key areas. A little earlier on, we spoke to Keir Giles, the paper's author. I asked him what he meant by the term the West when he said the West must do something. Well, it is a pretty broad catch-all term, isn't it? Really, with that, we have in mind anybody that has an interest in protecting the frontline states from Russia, anybody that does want to stand up for Russia's neighbours being sovereign, independent nations who can decide their own future and who doesn't want to see a return to the days of the Cold War or indeed the Russian Empire when the whole of Eastern Europe was under Russian control and domination. So a pretty broad church of people here. That goes beyond NATO, making it, I presume, well, even with NATO on its own, very difficult to achieve consensus, but with a, a wider range of, of Western allies here, very, very difficult indeed. That's exactly right. It is not just NATO. It is not just the EU that also has a role to play here, but it is also, for example, NATO partner nations uh, in the North States, for example. It is those states that are, are concerned about what Russia is doing and are looking for ways to prevent Russia from carrying out antisocial behaviour in the future. In strictly military terms, what needs reinforcing here within the NATO European orbit and, and more generally? Well, there are plenty of options for or deterring Russian military adventurism simply by having any kind of substantial presence of NATO troops in the frontline states. Now, at the moment, of course, that is prevented by NATO adhering to a very strict interpretation of this agreement with Russia from 1997, the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which says that there will be no substantial combat troops in the frontline states in the new NATO members. But, of course, that act... Uh, described the security situation that pertained in in Europe in 1997 and a lot of people think things have really moved on since 
then. It specifically says it's relevant for the foreseeable future. Russia's actions over the last six to eight years, I think, undermine that agreement altogether, and it is time to look at a new way of dealing with Russia. Let's bring Christopher Lee in here. Tell me, tell me Kim, when you look at, um, look at Russia, we're, we're now, I think, mentally think, thinking of uh, it's Putin's Russia, um, because the circumstances seem to have changed since 1997. Um, is it the sort of thing the sort of thing you're proposing is really sort of Putin isn't it it's not just Russia i know russia's doing the business but it's it's really sort of putin's mindset and so far we have not gone up against putin in any way ukraine's a perfect example syria you know you say to putin uh, you, you can't fix that with bombs you know and putin says you just watch me that's exactly right. Yes, so far, President Putin has been encouraged by the responses from NATO, from the West in general, to think that he can get away with military adventurism. Uh, this is a, a bad precedent to set, and Syria in particular has just confirmed for them once again that seizing the initiative with a military intervention does get them good foreign policy results and strategic wins for very little downside. But the other part of your question as to whether this is a Putin problem or a Russia problem, that's a, a discussion we're confronted with quite often. And I am convinced that this is actually a long-term Russia problem. Certainly, President Putin has a view of the world which is different from our own, but he's actually reflecting some very long-term and deeply held Russian convictions about the way the world works. So one of the key points that we argue in the report that was mentioned in your intro there, we're called Russia's New Tools for Confronting the West, is that it's actually just the last 25 years which are the exception to the norm in relations with Russia. The norm is confrontation because of this very Russian approach that their right is to domination of Eastern Europe and their defensive perimeter should extend across other people's territory. Yeah, there, I mean, there's another reality here, and that is that when we talk about, for example, NATO, NATO as in European uh, members of NATO, uh, a lot of them, of course, are members also of the EU. There's not a great deal they can do if they wanted, for example, to reinforce or change their NATO European orbit because their, their policies don't allow it, their budgets don't allow it, and their political thinking won't actually uh, commit. So we're really talking like this morning's news from, from America. OK, you send an armoured brigade, and how long do you keep it there? And nobody else is going to be doing it, and therefore the Americans are basically saying, well, you know, the Europeans, yet again... Uh, we've got to go there and we've got to look after our own interests. And our interests uh, are simply defined by the fact that the front line for America has to be Europe. Certainly there are a lot of self-inflicted injuries both within the, the NATO structure and in individual nations. NATO has, of course, uh, proclaimed that it's taking the initiative in taking steps to deter Russia with the, the very high readiness joint task force, the readiness action plan and so on. But these are really just drops in the ocean compared to what is required in order properly to deter Russia, as indeed is this new uh, rotation of the U.S. Armored Brigade combat team. This is 4,500 men, approximately, compared to the Russian snap exercises, which involve over 100,000. So the scale is, is just beyond any possible comparison. And the amount of effort and expense that would need to go into properly deterring Russia is far beyond anything that NATO has as yet considered. Speaking to us a little earlier, Keir Giles from Chatham House. 
Argentina is claiming that a new United Nations report on territorial rights supports its claim on the Falkland Islands. In a letter to the Times newspaper this morning, the man who commanded three brigade in the 1982 war to recover the Falklands, Major General Julian Thompson, says government should take these claims seriously and so hopefully prevent another war. Two guests on this, the first of which is Philip Steinberg, Professor of Political Geography at Durham University and Director of IBRU, the University's Centre for Borders Research. Philip, welcome. Firstly, briefly, what is this commission? Uh, can, can you hear me? Can you very well, Philip? Thank you. Yes. yes. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, in uh, the UN Commission on the Law of the Sea, uh, states are given rights to exclusive economic zones out to 200 nautical miles where uh, they have a f- uh, exclusive rights to living and non-living resources. But then beyond 200 nautical miles, if certain geological, bathymetric, scientific conditions are met, uh, states can also have exclusive rights to seabed minerals out typically to 350 nautical miles, sometimes less, sometimes more, depending on the science. So under the law of the sea, the Commission for the Limits of the Continental Shelf was established to assess scientific claims made by states as they seek to claim these areas of space um, for exclusive mineral rights. Uh, What happened here was that the CLC, well, back in uh, 2009, both Britain and Argentina made scientific filings with the commission. Uh, In 2012, the commission established a subcommission just to begin to look at the science of this all. Uh, Is there really contiguity between uh, the, the geological structure around the coastline of Argentina, uh, the, the islands, the Falklands themselves, and the seabed between them all, and basically said, yes, the, the science that Argentina filed that said that there was this geologic contiguity uh, was correct. So, in fact, the, the science has been provisionally verified. Philip, thank you Um, for that explanation of it. Let's bring in the Mike Summers now, who's chairman of the Legislative... Legislative... I knew I'd have trouble with that. Assembly of the Falkland Islands. Mike, good to speak to you again. What have Falkland Islanders made of this? Well, initially there was some concern uh, about the pronouncements from from Buenos Aires, but, uh, of course, once you get behind this, uh, you discover that the the UN has made no pronouncement about the, the waters around the Falklands, uh, it has no authority to make any pronouncements about sovereignty and, and, and sovereign rights around the Falklands. So I think uh, having having got over the uh, the initial difficulties, people are, are more settled about what's actually been said. But it was a concern initially, wasn't it? When that news was sort of uh, flashed, it did pr- you know promote a lot of worry in the Falklands. It was a it was a huge concern um, because the way that the Argentine government had presented it was as some sort of uh, major uh, concession or, or um, uh, agreement by the United Nations that somehow uh, Argentina had had sovereign rights over uh, the the, uh, the EEZ and uh, and continental shelf extensions in the Falklands area. Had that been the case, that would have been massively worrying. Uh, you know, we know from uh, from subsequent discussions that it's not the case, and it's simply a, another example of the Argentine government massively o- overegging the situation uh, to get to the public approval at home. But we we hoped, didn't we, Mike, that with the changing government in the Argentine, that this sort of thing wouldn't happen anymore. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, um, quite disappointing, I have to say. Uh, from from a Falklands perspective, we have seen 
no change yet in the uh, in the Macri government from from the previous Kirchner government. Uh, all the uh, all the methods that that the Kirchner government used to to harass and intimidate the people of the Falklands are still in place. All the economic sanctions are still in place, and there's been no statement from the Argentine government that they're prepared to take a different approach to uh, to the Falklands and Falklands people. So it is disappointing. Uh, you know, we've we've worked with the UK government to give them a bit of space and a bit of time to. Uh, to find themselves a, a different way forward, but so far nothing has been forthcoming. And let's return now to Philip Steinberg. Uh, Philip, from what Mike was saying there, speaking to us from the Falklands, this this initial thought that Argentina's claims have been upheld isn't actually the case. It, it goes to illustrate the confusion surrounding these issues now, doesn't it? Uh, yes, because we're used to looking at a map and seeing borders and assuming there's a, a zero-sum game that either one state has territory and, or another state doesn't. We think of borders as drawing the territories around nations. Uh, in this case, uh, first of all, I should point out we're technically not talking about borders. We're talking about limits. It's the, the limits of uh. a zone around which a state can make a claim. Uh, of course, we're in this world of varied rights where the sea above the seabed under any system would be high seas. Uh, this is just about very specific mineral rights to um, the soil and subsoil beneath the ocean. Uh, but it also complicates our ways of thinking of territory that one state's gain is another's loss. Mm. Uh, throughout the world, actually, because this is very technical science that goes on to determine whether or not the limits can be extended to a certain place, uh, very often states that are ultimately competing are actually working together um, typically, uh, in quite a few regions, actually, two states have made a joint submission saying, we've got the science. We know, for instance, let's say this example, that there is geological contiguity between the Falklands and the Argentine coast. So whatever ends up being decided about Falklands sovereignty in the end, the, the science will help both states and will, will help basically lead to an amicable solution. But before we get too excited about this, the other thing that this tells us is the starting point for all of this is still who has sovereign control over land. And in a way, everything is put on hold. Into, and in fact, the UN recognized this in their decision. Mm. Um, everything is put on hold until the ultimate sovereignty issue is worked out for the islands themselves. Christopher Lee. Just a thought. I was talking about this in, in, uh, in Washington about four weeks ago. And uh, I sort of surprised that the fellow I was talking to in the State Department said, because the United States could never support the British the British position on this and would have to tacitly support perhaps the Argentinian position on this. And this has got a lot to do with the organization of, of uh, American states, etc. But there's another aspect. Um, this morning in the, in, in, in the Times of uh, London, the guy that uh, commanded three brigade during the 82 conflict, Julian, uh, Julian Thompson, Brigadier Julian Thompson, as he then was, said, you know, let's not be scary, but let's also do what we didn't do in 80-81 and the beginning of 82. Let us sort of note this. Let us make sure that there is a patrol, for example, uh, a larger patrol of the Royal Navy in those, uh, that part of the world, just to remind people that we're not going to be uh, bowled over as we were before. Christopher, thank you. And also thank you to Philip Steinberg from Durham University and Mike Summers, of course, from the Falkland Islands. Finally on the programme, Christopher, you wanted to talk about...
Turkey and migrants. Well, a bit about Turkey, yeah. I mean, there were reports coming in, disturbing reports that Turkish border guards uh, have actually started shooting at and have shot dead uh, um, migrants coming in you know, or trying to get in through the Turkish border. And this is a, a big dimension change. Mm. Uh, before, you know, three months ago, they were giving them a hand and giving them flowers and blankets and anything they needed. But this has changed, and Turkey is changing. There's a 25% youth unemployment uh, in fertile parts of, of Turkey at the moment. And this has started to... Uh, produce people who are fed up. We're back to this idea in the 1835-year-olds. But 25% is a huge unemployment figure, you know, one in four. Mm. Um, and it's producing uh, recruits to the Kurdish uh, dissident groups. PPK and so forth. And, and also to ISIS. Now, when you've got that in a society that's got to control the, the migrants as well, then that's when you start to lose control of how you look after the, the basic things in your government. I'm guessing the shooting of these migrants on the border, if it's confirmed, will be hugely slammed down upon by groups who are watching the migrant situation, who have concern for their welfare. Do you know, I've heard people in London, in Migration Watch or connected with them, you know, very respectable, saying perhaps the only way to teach the others not to come in the first place is to shoot at least at their boats. You shoot at the boats, you shot at everybody else. Sad state of affairs, isn't it, Christopher? Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. That's all we have time for today. Don't forget you can download our podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. We're back next week. Kate Chabot in the chair then, but for now from me, Tim Cooper, goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Talks continue to...